your Bibles to turn to 1 Corinthians as we work our way through this book, and we're going to be looking at the whole chapter of 7. That didn't come out right. All of chapter 7. Hope the rest of the sermon doesn't come out that way. It's on page 1778 of the Pew Bible. I'd like to encourage you to open up there and leave it open there. I'll be referring to the text throughout the sermon. In Joy Davidson's book, Smoke on the Mountain, she writes this. Unfortunately, man cannot for long endure the common sense of God. Isn't that great? Side by side with Christianity and often mistaken for it, there has always existed a dark Eastern religion of despair. Perhaps first, it first came out of an exhausted and overpopulated India, where the Lord Buddha decided long ago that this life is a mess. The religion of despair often achieves a stoic and ascetic nobility. Very impressive to those who are impressed by dramatic gestures. Yet is is the very opposite of the true gospel. The Christian gives up his own desires for the love of others. The Eastern ascetic renounces the world because he thinks himself too good for it. Pride aping love, she writes. It is the devil's best trick. That's the human heart. Asceticism has always been a tempting replacement for the gospel. And that's what the Corinthians are struggling with here in chapter 7. Asceticism. Impressive outward displays. So they write to their father in the faith, Paul, and they ask him, What do you think about celibacy? And he writes the following. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not a command. I wish that all men were as I am. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to be married than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does... She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, 
If any brother has a wife who is, a who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, as the, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each one should remain in the place in life that the Lord has assigned him, in which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he, he was a slave when he was called by the Lord as the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was freed, a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves to men. Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. Now, about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the Lord's the affairs of the world, how, can he please, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in an undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is acting improperly towards a virgin he is engaged to, and if she is getting along in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. 
A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But she must be- but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. But I think I too have the spirit of God. Oh Lord Jesus, I ask you to help me preach to your people. In Jesus name. Amen. Context of this chapter is a new section in Paul's letter. Chapters 1 through 6, as we have talked about before, he's responding to things he has heard from Chloe's household. Chapter 1, verse 11. He now turns to things that they wrote to him about directly. They had specific questions on tithing. They had specific questions about bodily resurrection and spiritual gifts and worship and idolatry. And here, celibacy. They're writing to him about celibacy. Verse 1, if you look at it, NIV has a translation that says, Now to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Most Bibles have a little note at the bottom. I think it's a better translation. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. I think that's confusing. I think the NIV confuses us. A more literal translation like the NAS or perhaps ESV is much more helpful. They put that second part of that sentence in quotes. This is the question that they're asking about. This isn't Paul's suggestion to them. This is Paul's, this is this Corinthians question to Paul. The ESV is very helpful here. They're asking, does a Christian need to be celibate? They're asking, now that we're believers, this is all new to me, should I become celibate? Are we to live an ascetic life sexually? That's so important that you get this, guys, because if you don't understand that, the rest of the chapter makes a whole, does not make a whole lot of sense. It's confusing as it is, but you have to understand that he's answering the question, do I, do I now that I'm a Christian, do I have to live an ascetic lifestyle? Now this question might seem kind of odd to us right now, but it was not odd to them 2,000 years ago in the pagan uh, spiritual waters that they were, were used to. Because in paganism, it swung in two wild directions. And as a matter of fact, you see the two wild directions side by side here. In verse 12 of chapter 6, Paul's dealing with sexual immorality. We talked about that last week, or the week before last. And their question is, listen, we're hearing this slogan, everything is permissible. I mean, paganism swung in the direction of either license or legalism. And here we see them side by side. Can I do anything I want now that I'm forgiven? Or do I have to live an ascetic lifestyle now that I'm forgiven? Here we see the polar opposite that Paul is dealing with, celibacy. There's always a temptation in the human heart, always a temptation, guys, for us to make our religious pursuits 
ascetic. Outside. Make the physical spiritual. Make denying, denial and severity of life in certain areas spiritual. Through history, we know of an Egyptian soldier named Pacomius. He gave his life to Christ around 315 A.D. He was serious about his new faith and determined to grow, and so he became a disciple of Palaemon, an early ascetic who taught Pacomius the lifestyle of self-denial and of severity of life being the path to Christian maturity. In early Christianity, that was the model that was, that was most prevalent. These ascetics wandered the desert alone. You probably know of them. They fasted and they prayed. They were, they were, were in solitude, hermetic. Many went to extremes of eating nothing but grass or living in trees or refusing to wash. These are all ascetic lifestyles. Basically, it came down to the three S's, which is silence, solitude, and severity. That's the way to achieve Christian maturity. Silence, solitude, and severity of life. And so Pacomius' early training consisted of these, and it went on for years until he began to consider. He began to ask questions about the ascetic lifestyle. Questions like, how can you learn to love someone if you're not around anyone? Questions like, how can you learn humility living alone? How can you learn kindness or gentleness or goodness in isolation? How can you learn patience unless someone tests your patience? How can you learn self-control if there's nothing around you that tempts? What Pocomius slowly came to understand is that the ascetic life does not breed Christian maturity. As Paul writes in in, uh, Colossians chapter 2, that such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom on the outside with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any real value in restraining sensual indulgences. That there must be a balance, and that is exactly what Paul is trying to strike here, is celibacy's balance. That maturity does not consist of severe denial and treatment of your body, but in learning to live in the gracious freedom of Christ. Let me repeat that. Maturity does not consist of severe denial and treatment of your body, but in learning to live in the gracious freedom we have in Christ. That is Christian maturity. Martin Luther's little booklet is very helpful on this, a treatise on Christian liberty spells out the whole message of the gospel in a clear, heartwarming manner. And he says, he writes, Take note of these two things, must and free. Must and free. The must is that which, that which necessity requires, and which 
must ever, never, be, never be yielding to. As for instance, the faith, which I shall never permit anyone to take away from me, but which I must always keep in my heart and freely confess before everyone. That is a must. But free is that which I have choice and may or may not do. And he concludes by saying, now be careful you do not make a must out of a free. That's what the Corinthians were doing here. They were making a must out of what is free. Spiritual celibacy, singleness, is a freedom and a gift from God. But it must never become a must. There were some in the Corinthian church that were advocating and even equating celibacy with Christian maturity, making it a must. They were saying such things as, to be a mature follower of Christ, one has to embrace celibacy, must, must renounce sex altogether. They were taking a freedom of celibacy and singleness and making it a must. And to that, Paul says, no. That is simply not true. Verse 7, he says this at the end of, of that section. He says, I wish you were all that were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, one has that. One has the gift of celibacy, another one doesn't. They're both good. John Stott, who many of you might know, he was a, a pastor uh, in the second half of the 20th century, early 21st, he was celibate his whole life. A great man of God did a lot for modern evangelicalism. And he says this, he writes this, we must never exalt singleness as if it were a higher and holier vocation than marriage. We must reject this ascetic tradition which disparages sex as legalized lust and marriage as legalized fornication. Now, sex is a good gift from a good creator, and marriage its own institution. If marriage is good, singleness is good too. It's an example of the balance of Scripture that, although in Genesis 2.18 indicates that it is good to marry, here in 1 Corinthians 7, he says it is good for a man not to marry too. Both the married and the single states are good. Neither is in itself better or worse than other. And that's the balance that Paul is trying to strike throughout this whole chapter. You might have read this chapter, and you might have heard me read it, and you go, you know, it just sounds like Paul is speaking out of both sides of his mouth, doesn't it? You know, Paul, could you just come down and tell me what it is, instead of saying one thing and then saying another thing? What he's trying to do is give the Corinthian believers this theological balance, this freedom in Christ that we all have to learn. So he says, get married. But it's good if you don't. In verses 9 and 8 and 9, he says, if you're a widow or unmarried, don't look for a spouse. But if you find one, get married. Verses 12 through 15, he's talking to unbelieving spouses, and he says, listen, if you're married to a spouse who doesn't believe, 
stay with them. But if they leave, let them go. In verses 17 through 14, he's talking about talking to slaves. And he says, listen, if you're born a slave, stay a slave. But if you can gain your freedom, that's good too. In verses 25 through 38, he's talking to those who are engaged, betrothed. It's called virgins here. He's talking to the betrothed. and He says, listen, if you're betrothed to be married, then marry. But you know what? If you don't get married after all, that's okay too. Paul is trying to embed in them the theology of freedom in Christ. Don't make a free a must. That the gospel does not support an ascetic way of life. That the ascetic life does not increase your spirituality, whether it is food, which we'll be dealing with next week, whether it's poverty, which is, in many people's eyes, much more noble than being wealthy, and that's not true. Or whether it's here, celibacy and chastity, singleness. It might have the appearance of wisdom, but it's not. And we have a really good, well, I can't say good, we have a really bad example of that throughout the world today. The Catholic Church. They demand that priests take a vow of celibacy. And to that, I want to tell you, Paul says, no, that's not biblical. It might appear noble and spiritual and mature, but it really isn't. And we'll talk about that momentarily. So Paul's going to great lengths here to tell the, the Corinthians and us that the gospel does not demand you abstain from sex and marriage. The gospel doesn't uh, demand that you adhere to secondary issues. Here, John Calvin is very helpful. If you know John Calvin, he wrote the Institutes, which is really the first systematic theology the church really had. And in that, he talks about something called adiaphora. I know that's a weird word, adiaphora, but it just means things indifferent, things, secondary issues. And according to Calvin, he talks about three aspects of our freedom in Christ that I want to tell you about because it's very helpful. First, Calvin writes, the Christian is free in his conscience from the terrors of the law. This is the first freedom. And this is the great freedom that we gain in Christ. We gain a great freedom in our conscience, in our mind, from the terror of the law. Think of what the law demands of us. Think of, think of the wages of sin the law demands. And that's the great freedom we have in Christ, people. If you have put your faith in Christ, you, that the law holds no terror for you. Because although your heart will say you have to perform, you have to do, you have to obey the law in order to get to heaven, Christ obeyed the law for you. That's his perfect life. That's Hebrews 4.15. He was tempted in every way, yet did not sin. The law holds terror for for the wages of sin is death. The, The law can be a terror when you read it. But Christ fulfilled that too, didn't he? 
He went to the cross. He paid your debt of sin. That's what the gospel is all about, this freedom from the terror of the law. And Romans 8 tells us that our, that our conscience, our minds are free from the, the, the being bound to fear. Romans 8.15. We are free from the terror of the law. Brings us to Calvin's second freedom, which is a believer has a freedom in conscience to obey the law. This is the beauty. This is what we're talking about in Sunday school today, as a matter of fact. You see, our hearts are changed and transformed, metamorphosized by the gospel. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that we are transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Do you know what that means? It means that Christ is still working in us to transform our hearts more and more. Transform our hearts to do what? To love, to obey God. Isn't that amazing? You know, we, we hate obedience. It's, it's like, well, obey, it is a four-letter word. We hate that in our heart. But what the gospel actually does, people, is it changes our hearts and makes it so that we delight in that. And by the way, if you're sitting here and you call yourself a Christian, you should be having that experience on some level, on a continuing basis. Because he changes you. Isn't that beautiful? And finally, the third freedom that, that Calvin talks about is the freedom of conscience in regard to the use of indifferent things. And this is what's germane to our topic today. The use of indifferent things. We have the freedom in those things that are spiritually neutral. We have freedom. Things that are not commanded nor, nor forbidden in Scripture. Paul says several times here, I say this in concession. He says it, over and over in this chapter, do this, but you know what? If your conscience tells you to do this, it's okay too. That's why this chapter holds so much confusion for people because what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to help us understand that there's this incredible freedom. That many times we just don't grasp. There's freedom in such things as drinking and food and festivals, and marriage, and celibacy. What Paul's trying to communicate in this chapter is the need to be very mindful not to make a must out of a free. But Paul does give some boundaries, and that's really what the rest of the chapter is about. As you read this chapter, i got to tell you, it does the application for you. And as I was sitting here preparing today, I'm going, my goodness, yes, there's theology here, but most of this, Paul is just applying it to their lives. So why don't we just apply this to our lives? He applies it in four different areas, marriage, single, divorced, and betrothed. Marriage, single, divorced, and betrothed. To the married, he says in, in verses 2 through 7, that's the section that really focuses on marriage. Paul says sexual relations in marriage are normal and good and necessary. Those are the things he says. So to those of you who are married among us, 
Sexual relations are good and normal and necessary. Making love should be a common experience in marriage. Paul gives no frequency here. But it should be common. In other words, there should be no deprivation. He talks about that in this very specifically. Sex should not be used as a tool or a weapon or something to get what you want. He even goes to the, to the extreme here. And this is an extreme of telling the husband and wife that your body doesn't belong to you anymore. I gotta tell you, that would blow the minds of, of the sexual ethic 2000 years ago. Because the husband owned the wife. That's just how it was. So by him saying this, it would just shatter all preconceptions. So husbands, if you're here, your body doesn't belong to you anymore. When you made that vow, you gave up that right. And wives, when you made a vow to your husband, you gave up that right too. Your body is not your own, despite what culture is telling you. Then Paul makes a celibacy concession in marriage in verse 5. Did you see it? He says right there, Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you can devote yourselves to prayer. There are short times in marriage where celibacy should happen. But notice the boundaries that Paul puts on it. It should be mutually agreed upon, should be temporary, and it should be purposeful. Purposeful. There should be a purpose for the celibacy. Celibacy in marriage is kind of like fasting for everybody else. When you fast, the reason you fast, one of the many reasons you fast, is so that you're reminded when you're the hunger pains come that you're doing this for a spiritual reason. And thus you are to pray or to do what you are doing for fasting for the spiritual reason. Same reason in marriage. When that sexual desire comes up and you've agreed, that's to remind you, no, we're taking this temporary, mutually agreed upon break from this natural desire so that we can concentrate on something spiritual. What is that? It can be many things. It can be if you have a burden for the kingdom of God growing in this area of Hancock. It could be you could take a a sexual break to pray for that. Or if there's an issue happening in your body at church, I would encourage us to do that. Or some other gospel issue. It's purposeful. But then Paul says and commands to come back together. Because here the potentially hard teaching for some to hear is that celibacy is not good in marriage. Because, as we said last week, coming together is like spiritual glue. Which is bad outside the marriage covenant because you're gluing yourself to people over and over again. And we talked about the damage that does two weeks ago. But in the context 
of a loving covenantal marriage before God, you want to reapply that glue. Reapply that glue. Reapply that glue. And that's good. Paul then moves on, though, to the married, unmarrieds and widows in verses 8 and 9. Those who are not yet married and those who are widowed. So singles and widows. He says celibacy is good. Abstinence is appropriate in an unmarried position. But Paul gives a boundary here too, though, doesn't he? He says in verse 9, but they can, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The boundary here is passion. You see, we're all created with a natural sex drive. And let me tell you, let's just say this once and for all. The sex drive is good. It was created by God. It was given to us by God. Your sex drive is good. Sin distorts that sex drive. That's the doctrine of original sin. And it can either sinfully diminish it or sinfully give it, you know, increase it to a point where you can't control it. And where it is sinfully enhanced, Paul gives a concession here. If, if it is all-consuming, if it is all-encompassing, if it is uncontrollable, if that's all you think about, if you can't go through your days, if it's, if it's impinging on your work floor, get married. Find a spouse. Get married. That's why it always sounds like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Paul says it's good to place that in the right godly context of a covenantal marriage. In fact, that same boundary applies, if you notice, back up in verse 5 of uh, in the marriage covenant. You've got to be careful when you abstain in marriage that Satan doesn't get a foothold in your marriage. You've got to be careful. He's always looking for that foothold. And abstinence... In celibacy, in marriage, I want to tell you, is a potential foothold for Satan. Paul next addresses those who are divorced in verses 10 and 11. He tells that those who are divorced, remain unmarried. Remain celibate. Guys, this is as hard to hear 2,000 years ago as it is today when we're talking about divorce. Divorce was almost as common 2,000 years ago, and the reasons were similar. 2,000 years ago, people did not think divorce was a big deal. Same as today. 2,000 years ago, people thought that they had a second chance at marriage, a second chance at happiness. Same as today. Today, there are things that are called, and I don't know if you've heard of these, they started calling them starter marriages. Have you heard this term? This is, this is common now in the younger generation. They think their first marriage isn't permanent. It's just to kind of get a taste and kind of understand marriage. And then their second one is really going to be their marriage. Same 2,000 years ago. And here Paul confronts both. He upholds 
that divorce is a big deal. Divorce is a big deal. A husband must not divorce his wife, and vice versa here. Those are imperatives. Those are commands. I know we don't have time to go into all the, all the different uh, nuances of, of the reasons, biblical reasons to get a divorce, adultery, abandonment, abuse, things like that. But the big brush is Paul elevates divorce to being a very big deal. And secondly, he gives two options once you're divorced. And these are hard. This is hard. He says you can remain celibate, remain unmarried. Or you can be reconciled to your spouse. My heart goes out to you if you're divorced. It does. You know, I was in my study and I was going, you know, I'm just going to skip over this. This is just too hard. This is this will hurt people. But I truly think this is what God's word says. Sometimes God's word is is hard. And this is hard. So my heart goes out to you. What Paul is effectively doing is elevating marriage to a once in a lifetime thing. Once in a lifetime. Got one shot. It's kind of like the if you go to the Olympics and you're an Olympic pole vaulter and you've got one shot at this. This is your shot to, to get the gold. Yeah, you got the pole in your hand, you're running down that lane. I'm not going to be back in four years. This is my shot. It's kind of where Paul brings it to. And I realize this is a hard teaching. And I think Paul does too. And so he puts salve on that wound, I think, in verses 29, 30, and 31. When he starts talking about, get a, a, an eternal perspective on this. This life is not forever. If you're in that situation, it, I know it's hard, Paul is saying. But you have to know that this life is, is, is but a mist that is here one moment and gone the next. He's trying to give hope and ease to those that are in this difficult situation. It might seem like a forever sentence, but it's not. In verses 12 through 16, Paul spins off on a tangential subject that needed to be dealt with in the Corinthian church. And that is people who have come to faith in Christ, but their spouse hadn't. Okay, you know, they, they, they wrote and they say, listen, Mary has given her life to Christ, but, but Paul still hasn't. Should they get a divorce? Should Mary become celibate? And in that section, he says, no. No, if, if you come to Christ and your spouse hasn't, stay in that covenant relationship. And he even gives a wonderful encouragement there. Did you notice that? That the husbands, you will sanctify your wife, and wife, you will sanctify your husbands. What he's talking about there is, is not some, something other than you 
by living out the gospel in your marriage, will be witnessing and encouraging your spouse towards the Lord. As you love and as you forgive and as you apologize and as you serve, as you change before his, his or her very eyes, that will be an amazing effect on your unbelieving spouse. Stay married. But he says, listen, if they just want to get out of town, if they just can't do it, if they leave you, if they abandon you, let them go. It's okay. Finally, Paul deals with the engaged or betrothed in verses 25, 29, 36, and 38. Betrothal or engagement it was a much bigger deal 2,000 years ago. You have to know that. You kind of get an, uh, a uh, perspective of this in Mary and Joseph. Remember, they were engaged to be married, and she became pregnant with Jesus. And he, it, it even says there in Luke, he, he was going to divorce her quietly. I mean, that's the, the level of which betrothal was back then. It was like being married. And so he's addressing that situation. You're in this committed betrothal, which could be from very young age, so many years. You're in this betrothal situation. What should we do? So the question is, should they opt out of this for celibacy? What should we do? Paul says once again, freedom. Freedom. Verse 38 sums up what his argument is here. You can look at it yourself. So then he who marries the virgin or betrothed does what is right, but he does not marry her does even better. It's free. But that does lead us into our last point and very quickly, celibacy's blessing. Paul says, if you don't marry her, you do even better. Paul seems to be saying throughout these 40 verses that in some way, and you can get this from these verses, in some way, being celibate or single or remaining unmarried is better. You you can get that from this. I mean, you read such verses as verse 7, I wish all men were as I am, single. Or verse 26, it is good for you to remain unmarried. Or verse 40, a widow widow is happier if she stays unmarried. Is Paul putting celibacy and singleness above marriage? No. All he is doing, people, all he is doing is saying, celibacy, if you're called to it, it's a blessing. You have a blessing that you that I know you're kicking against the goads in this. I know you are, but it's a blessing. That's what he's saying. Paul says here that singleness and celibacy come with a particular blessing for a believer. Undivided attention to the kingdom of God. Undivided attention to the kingdom of God. Look at verses 32 
He says, I would like you to be free from concern. As unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife. And its interests are divided. He says the same thing about a woman. Verse 35, he says, I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If you're single for any reason here today, you've got to know this. This is for you. Consider it a blessing from God. Begin to reorient your thinking. You are given a gift that you can concentrate on the things of God in an undivided manner that I cannot. I lived that this week. My wife was here when I was down in Connecticut. Now my wife is in Ohio and I'm here and I'm trying to minister to you because I love you with all my heart. But I'm trying to minister to my family and to my wife. I'm divided. I am divided. But a person that is not married has a single laser focus on the gospel and his kingdom and how beautiful that is. I rarely bring myself into sermons, but I can tell you I lived this. I didn't get married till I was 31. And in those 10 years between college and when I got married, I had gobs of time to give to God's work. You know, I, I, I would... I, was, I gave 40 hours to my work, but I would give 20 hours to God's work. I just loved it. And it was beautiful. I could go away for weekends, you know, on, on retreats and teach. And I just can't do that now. I've got to go, okay, I have this much time, and I have to care for my wife and family. I wish I could do this, and this, and this, and this. I can't. If you're here and you're single for any reason, it is a blessing. I, John Stott would tell you that. He's not with us anymore. Amy Carmichael, the missionary, would tell you that, and she's not with us anymore. The Apostle Paul is telling you that, and Jesus lived that. Serious nature of furthering God's kingdom. That is the application here for you if you're single. Take very seriously that you've been given a blessing and throw yourself into the work of the Lord. Think of what Paul says through the Spirit's inspiration. God is so serious about building his kingdom here on earth that we're to spend time praying about it. That's what we just did through the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. He's so serious that we're to give our lives to it. And he's so serious about bringing God's kingdom here that Christ came and gave his life for it. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Spirit, no winsome presentation or good turn of words can change a heart, but you can through your word, and I pray that's true. In Jesus' name, amen.